This podcast is proudly sponsored by Virtuous. Now, giving is a very deeply personal thing, and they believe that your fundraising should be too. This is actually something we talk about a lot on this very podcast in terms of how can we grow, improve, and optimize giving and generosity. So traditional impersonal fundraising tactics often alienate donors and create a distance between them and the impact that they want to have. Virtuous is the only responsive fundraising platform designed to help nonprofit teams build better donor relationships with all of their donors. And I have to say, I think it's a great product. I've referred multiple nonprofits and charities over there in the past and continue to do so in the future because I believe in the people and the product and I just think it's a really good modern piece of fundraising focused software. So I recommend you check it out. And if you are interested in finding out more, you can go to virtuous.org slash generosity. That is virtuous, V-I-R-T-U-O-U-S dot org slash generosity. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Generosity Freak Show. I'm your host, Brady Josephson. And today we have a special treat because we get to talk to not one, but two people from Fundraise Up about all things donation page, friction, mobile payments, and more. We are chatting with Nick Miller, who's the director of experience at Fundraise Up, and Salvatore Salpietro, who's the chief experience officer at Fundraise Up, a donation page tool and company that is so research and data focused. It's one of the things I love about them and their work. We actually partnered with them on a research project to look at the online giving experience and build a tool to assess and analyze friction within that online giving experience. So that's kind of what guides the conversation, but we go down some paths into fee covering and uh, mobile wallets and some rapid fire questions about 90s cover bands and things like that. So uh, if you like donation pages, or even if you don't, I think you'll enjoy this conversation. So thank you, as always for listening. Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. I said, welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show, here we go. It's just another Freak Show, here we go. Hi guys, thanks for coming on the show. Hi Brady, thanks. Hey Brady. All right, so we're just gonna dive right into some good old friction. So we partnered with you guys on uh, on a friction-related donation page study. Um, why don't you help tell me and those of us listening, everyone listening, um, what is friction? Why is it so important? Why did you wanna do this study? Uh, that's a good question, Brady, and I'm going to give the super simple explanation, and then uh, together Sal and I can break down some more specifics, but I'm going to put it this way. Friction is anything that's getting in the way of a nonprofit's donors showing support for that nonprofit. Big, big problem. Big, big problem. That's why we wanted to do the study. Okay, cool. So we went about the study. We built a tool with you guys and uh, had 25 questions. Nonprofits could answer most of them yes, no kind of binary questions based off data and evidence that you had or data evidence that we had of like, this is a problem, a, a significant problem that stops or slows donors from giving. We would score. And then we did this meta analysis of 643 nonprofits and produced this beautiful study. So thanks for, for partnering with us on that. But what, what stood out to you kind of on the initial key findings as kind of interesting or surprising? Uh, anything jump out? Nick, I, I I think you had some extra time to look at the report's early draft. Um, 
Uh, I, I know I was uh, looking at it in the earlier stages and um, some of the, the early findings there. But uh, the, for me, what jumped out is this, the delta between nonprofit tech and for-profit tech. And hmm. I, I often refer to uh, donors as consumers uh, because that's, uh, that's, that's, I mean, that, that's done on purpose because they are consumers. Uh, donors are the same person that, you know, are buying things in stores. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll use that terminology as, as, we, as we discuss. But um, that was really the biggest thing that jumped out at me was the difference in friction and approach between for-profit and nonprofit. Absolutely. And Brady, I'll say this stood out to me, but was not surprising. But the difference that we saw in the study between other nonprofit verticals and higher education specifically. And um, again, it, not a surprise because we know, and I'm sure you know too at this point, based on the data, that there seems to be a lot of friction in the giving experience in higher ed. And as people, themselves dive into the study, they will see um, visually in these charts and the, and the graphs that have been put together based on the data, a big difference in terms of what the nonprofit experience looks like in general across other verticals. And then uh, again, with higher ed. Yeah. And we've seen that not just in this study, but in, in other studies where we, you know, score the giving experience in higher ed typically does Poorly, and part of it is they're trying to serve the needs of many different types of consumers exactly. or customers, right? You've got a young alum who's maybe trying to make a small, like you know, recurring gift, perhaps, and then you've got the large donor who wants to contribute to you know their un uncle or aunt's endowment mm -hmm. fund, and you've got campaigns, you know, and everyone's kind of being pushed to one central page from the school of medicine and the school of you know engineering. Right. Sometimes they have their own departments, sometimes they don't, and like. You know, we did a full in-depth study on higher ed. So, like, I understand a lot of the complexities and a lot of them would say, like, well, what are we supposed to do? Like, you know, this is how we're constructed. So what maybe what tips specific to higher ed or just nonprofits in general who have this friction? And sometimes it feels like it's necessary friction. But like, what have you seen in all your work across all your clients of helping them kind of identify and remove uh, friction that's kind of hurting their donors and their giving? Well, you just mentioned, Brady, that, you know, you you hear you know, they'll, they'll, they'll respond, you know, that's how we're structured. Well, then change your structure, right, <laughs> is, is the answer. So, I mean, that kind of leads into my thoughts about this point. This question is, is the thing, the actual thing needed to remove the friction is usually easy, right? It could be something like add autocomplete for the mailing address so they don't have to type the whole dang thing. Uh, or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, make that phone number field optional. Why are we making, you know, Whatever it might be, um, that's that's easy in in the core of it. the The difficult part is the decisions and politics around it. Uh, it's how nonprofits are built. I think even more so when it's a more established nonprofit that's been around for a long time, the focus back to the mission and the bottom line can get lost in what chairman of the board X says. Right. Um, but uh, it might simply be that that nonprofit doesn't have the funds to pay for or achieve uh, that certain change in their forms or a specific friction, like you said, is deemed necessary because a different team needs that friction point. A different team needs the mailing address. But that conflicts with what the other team is trying to achieve. Um, so it's it's, you know. There's more parts to it. 
Exactly. And Brady, as you mentioned, there may be some quote unquote friction points that are necessary in some cases. And so for for us, it's it, it comes down to how do you take a necessary friction point and make it better? Because some nonprofits will come to the table and say, well, we need to have the mailing address for whatever reasons. And sometimes they're valid. Sometimes it's a teachable moment. But in those moments where it's valid, to Sal's point, there's features like autocomplete that make this really, really easy. So the, the, the donor doesn't have to enter their full address. And you can take it a step further by making the autocomplete smart based on IP address, for example. So you take those necessary friction points and you make them less painful. Yeah. yeah, can you give some other examples of, of when friction is, is kind of needed? And I'll, I'll give you a second to think while I uh, share why, like our view anyways, of the, the starting point is reduce and remove all friction. Like that should be the starting point. And then you only add elements of friction that you know help your donor experience somehow. You know, like there's examples, especially more on the for-profit side, when you ask more information about them, like what's their name, for example, even if you could process a gift and issue them a tax receipt without using their name, which you really can't, you would want to collect their name because you want to call them Nick or call them Sal when they're donors and like personalize their email communication experience. So that's, you know, quote unquote, adding friction or asking a question. We've seen cases where you ask people, how would you like your money to be used? And it's not a gift designation, but you get someone to reflect. Now they feel like they have a sense of autonomy in terms of like, what do I want to have happen? I, I care about this, but they're also telling you what they care about. Now you can use that downstream. So like we have evidence that those things can add value to the donor and then you as fundraiser, but you don't start from that standpoint with asking like, what's your birthday? And I'll you like remove everything, start from zero friction or as close to zero and then add back. And that's, that's our approach to like adding friction is start from nothing and then add back. So like, what are some of the things that you've seen where maybe there are some like friction fields or friction that can actually, you know, provide a good experience or, you know, lead to more revenue later on, perhaps. Nick, I, I think uh, you, I think you wrote the, the research piece on the mailing address as well. Um, but um, I, I want to talk about designations and where funds are used, right? Um, mm. I've seen some nonprofits that will require you to choose from a list. Mm. I've seen, you know, two, three in a, in a, in a drop-down pick list kind of thing. I've seen 20, 30, 50, 100 in some nonprofits. And in some cases, they won't pre-select or default to something. Um, right. A lot of friction, you can take a best guess, right? They'll say, okay, well, we can't pre-select that for them anymore because three people called and said it was a problem. You go, well, look at the 7,282 that didn't find it a problem. <laughs> you know, we, right. can, we can guess based on the majority and let the minority select. So if they're coming from a page that's talking about your water well project in Africa somewhere, uh, pre-select the designation when they click donate there because you're pretty sure that's what they're going to go for. Let them change it if they need to. That's one way. Um, Nick, mailing address, maybe you can elaborate on some of that. Yes, and that was an interesting research study for us to conduct. And again, thinking about assumptions in fundraising that have been formed over time, you know, there was a time when maybe the address for a donor was required for billing verification, but that's no longer the case. And so we really want to dispel 
uh, notions like that that maybe had practicality in an older sense but are no longer valid. And so we did a test with mailing addresses where it was required and not required. And there are some impressive conversion statistics around this. And for those of you who are listening or watching and are, are curious to learn more about that, visit our blog at blog.fundraiseup.com. A lot of interesting research there. And Brady, what I'll also include here is that, and to your point, not all friction is bad. Some of it can actually help us achieve our fundraising goals. And so to me, it's not about spelling friction in its entirety. It's about choosing where that friction is going to be placed. And so what to us a lot of times as a company that's obsessed with optimization uh, seems like a, a go figure is not always, that's not always the case for, for nonprofits. And so to us, we recognize that there's a lot of opportunities that can be placed after the checkout process is complete. You don't need to capture every single data mm -hmm. point while the donor is attempting to make their donation. And so for the nonprofits, something to consider is, what do I want to collect and how much of it can I collect after, after the donation has been made? And the beautiful thing about that approach is that you actually start to build the number of touch points that you're having with your donor after they give. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's a great point. And um, whether it's uh, like demographic information that you don't necessarily need or the other areas is more like um, softer data, like donor satisfaction mm -hmm. or just like, Hey, what are you interested in? You know, where it's more casual, but it helps you get to know them and they get to exert some of that autonomy and feel like they're more connected. Like that's amazing stuff to ask. And actually right after the donation is probably a really good that's time cool. and place to do it, you know, instead of waiting three months, or jamming it during a donation yeah. process and having them, you know, think about those things. Like that's a great use in my opinion of like the thank you page or the immediate, you know, post donation. So it's not like, yeah, that information doesn't have value, but this is where if nonprofits can think about what's key information, first of all, how can we then collect it and think beyond, we got to get it it's, it's when they're on our form, you know, with intention, really, Correct. right. It's the it's, intent part. It's, 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 what's your intention? Why do you need it? And I'll even yeah. add, you know, and you need intention and data, like give me the numbers behind it. And, and, you know, to use the mailing address example, right? Sure. Mm -hmm. Conversion rate drops 19% or whatever it may be. It's somewhere around there. I think uh, if you require a mailing address, but you may have a kick ass direct response team doing amazing mailings that get a massive ROI where you say, I'm willing to take that hit because 30% of our revenue comes from direct response. So let me let me take that 19% mailing addresses we need them because we're going to do well on it. So instead of just what, you know, board member X or Y said or someone's opinion about it, we have to, you know, encourage nonprofits to use more intention and data when introducing friction. Yeah, and that should be a, a relatively easy question to answer with some data saying like should we turn this on or off? And you can just pretty simply model it out, right? If you know multi-channel donors are worth three times more than single channel, and you know what it costs to convert, you know, an online donor into a multi-channel donor, then it's, you basically have all the information to make a, a fairly informed decision of actually this is better to keep this required versus not. And whether it's phone or something else that you're choosing, you know, to inform. But that's a great point. It starts with some data to be able to make those decisions. And that's what we see. And that's partly what we saw in the study too is, 
I think a lot of organizations are making a lot of decisions, not necessarily based off their own data, just they're copying someone else who maybe doesn't know why they've they've done that or not. And so um, I think that's a really key point. I just want to jump back to the address thing because maybe someone's listening like, wait a second, how can you not put in their address and still complete a donation? Can you explain that a little bit more? Yes. And part of that comes down to the differences between what I'll call legacy technology and a more modern approach to payment processing. And so, for example, with a legacy platform, that might actually be a data point that that processor needs as part of their own verification validation process. But the difference, and this is the route that we choose to go here at Fundraise Up, is to work with a payment processor that is looking ahead and asking questions like, why is that necessary? And if it's not necessary, necessary, how do we remove it from the equation? And so we partner with Stripe as our payment processor, and they have some incredible technologies baked in. Um, one of those technologies is called Stripe Radar, and that is Stripe's approach to preventing fraud and uh, making sure that you're getting the appropriate transaction every time. And so between our two platforms, the proprietary technology that we have and Stripe's proprietary technology, we have a lot of different ways to verify a cardholder's identity instead of requiring the billing address for the card. And what about issuing the tax receipt then, right? So I understand the verification, but don't you need their address to issue a tax receipt? Only in Canada and the uh, United Kingdom. There you go. Just the Canadians being difficult with all their, you know, requirements. <laughs> yeah, Brady, well have, have, have a conversation with your people. <laughs> <laughs> Us Canadians will just get together and talk about our tax receipts. Uh, yeah, cool. Thank you. That that helps a lot. Well, another thing that we we looked at in the study was um, mobile payments, and we looked at just payment methods overall, right? But mobile payments was actually one of the key findings. Where in this research study we did with you, only fifteen percent of organizations said they could accept. Wow or had mobile payments actually turned on. So you just said, wow, why is that your reaction? I mean, I know why it's partly your data, but can you share why your initial reaction is, is wow to that type of data point? I didn't even know that data point yet, that 15, only 15% are using it. And uh, Brady, was PayPal included in that or that was excluded? PayPal was separate. Okay. So we asked like, do you have PayPal? And then we counted mobile wallets as like Google Pay, Apple Pay, those types of right. things. But PayPal was slightly separate. If you added in PayPal, I'll get that number here in a second. Uh, it would definitely be higher, but okay. mobile wallets was, was 15%. So Google Pay, Apple Pay. Point for everybody who's listening or viewing. The, the year is 2021. And we see, <laughs> we see mobile for some context, <laughs> just to contextualize the conversation. But <laughs> we see mobile wallets accepted everywhere at this point. As an example, I use Apple Pay to board the New York City uh, transit system every morning and every evening. And at the last three restaurants that I have dined at there was no paper receipt presented to me. It was a QR code. And I scan that QR code and I'm able to make my payment and leave a tip using Apple Pay. And so we see mobile wallets in mass usage at this point. And so when Sal and I you know, learned that there's still 
a pretty high number of nonprofits that aren't able to accept these mobile wallets, we translate that to money that's being left on the table. And that's ultimately what we want to fix. And what happens is that a lot of nonprofits will see delivering mobile wallets as something that's from a technical standpoint, incredibly challenging. And for the most part, it is. It requires having a developer to build that out for you. You have to leverage the payment processor's API. And so what we did differently with Fundraise Ups is to say, it's going to be a button that you click in your account dashboard to activate this payment method and we'll do the heavy lifting on our side. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's mobile payments, express wallets, things like that. It's, it's a natural extension of what consumers are used to. And if they're going to buy more, you know, more likely to buy something with an Apple Pay or Google Pay, tap to pay, whatever it is, they're more likely to donate. And, you know, it's, it's it, like, like Nick says, it is an investment and it takes some time to implement and figure it out. But I'm telling you that all of those for-profit organizations aren't doing it on their own necessarily. They're getting some software off the shelf. And I feel like nonprofits often get tripped up in, we don't have the resources internally to do it ourselves. And that stifles a lot of growth and innovation because it's a nonprofit with a mission, not a tech company with 25, 30 engineers. Um, and, um, you know, I think that's uh, some of the stuff there that kind of, hint, you know, it, hinders hinders that adoption of those uh, now ubiquitous payment methods. Yeah, and there's two things in there. One, one, a lot of nonprofits I know, because we, we go and make test donations for other research studies, I know they're using technology that has no ability to even just toggle on mobile payments. Like the, that mm -hmm. definitely exists. But I know that there are also other nonprofits that didn't even know that they have a toggle option. Yeah. You know, they could even be fundraise up clients, although probably not, sure. who have that toggle option and it's turned off or they're scared to turn it on or they don't know. So like that's a factor, but 15% and I just looked it up, the 60% don't have PayPal, wow. um, you know, turned on either. Let's, you guys focus on data. Let's use some data. Like, do you have some numbers or some data? As, as to either the PayPal side or the mobile wallet side of like why it's so important to turn those on or have tools or technology that has that enabled? Here's a, a fascinating statistic about PayPal because we've also researched this. And this might sound a little crazy, but just by showing the PayPal logo as a payment option, a nonprofit can see a conversion increase of seven percentage points. And... Uh that number might seem low to some people, but if you consider that 7% can translate to millions of dollars in donation revenue, that's a big deal by making that option accessible to donors. And again, it's just by showing the PayPal logo during checkout. And they may or well, may not have used PayPal for the donation. Just having it as an option. Having it as an option saw an overall conversion rate lift. Some of them might have donated with something else, but there's Correct. also a brand alignment. There's trust. PayPal almost serves as a as a as a trust uh, uh, as any mobile wallet will. You know, you have Apple Pay in your checkout. I feel like, you know, me as a consumer wearing my consumer hat, I feel like these guys, you know, Apple knows about them enough to allow them to use Apple Pay, right? So there's a trust factor there that might be, you know, it might be background, might be subliminal, but it's it's there nonetheless. 
Yeah. I mean, we, we know from our other testing and research when we just like shade a credit card area and like put a little lockbox or say like enter your secure credit card information, all those little cues to make sure that this is secure. Mm -hmm. You see the lift in conversion. And so by having a PayPal logo or an Apple logo or a Google logo, similar effect. instantly probably engenders more trust and like, oh, this is more secure than just kind of using who knows what kind of form. So like you've got that going on. I think it was your research where you're um, in that same experiment you saw 20% of people actually use PayPal. So the adoption rate was high, yeah. but overall conversion also went up. So there's like, you know, no downside. And then what's really interesting when we look at mobile wallets on the recurring giving side, it's a little early to know for sure, for sure, because it's still relatively, you know, new in the age of mobile wallet. But like early indicators are that people giving via PayPal, recurring gifts via PayPal and mobile wallets uh, are more likely to be retained because their credit card is less likely to actually go expired. Mm -hmm. Or when it does, they're more likely to update mm -hmm. Apple Pay, Google Pay, PayPal, instead of all their like recurring donations. And so there's a good argument. I mean, ACH and giving via bank is obviously the best if you can do it for recurring. But absent that, it seems like the next best thing would be to get someone to actually choose a mobile wallet kind of payment method uh, for recurring giving. And then the other thing is on mobile. I mean, there's still only about you know, a third of, of online revenue comes in on mobile and the conversion rate isn't as great, but it's growing every single year. People are more likely to do it. And, you know, mobile wallets will certainly enable people giving on a mobile device to have a better experience than digging out your credit card on the subway or whatever you have to do, you know? So it's just, it, it was shocking to me. I knew some of that, but using your research and going through this too, that just seems like, wow, what a missed opportunity, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think, I think we're seeing hey. around almost 50% of donations going through mobile in our world, uh, Brady, but that's, that's interesting to know about the third metric there. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's more like, you know, industry, sure. industry at large and it changes from client to client, but are there any downsides to mobile wallets uh, that you can think of? So um, in donor information, uh, transaction costs, uh, trust and security, like, is there any reason that you can think of why a nonprofit would not turn on mobile wallets? Not the not the mainstays, not the the Apple Pay, Google Pay, PayPal kind of trifecta, which is currently kind of holding you know market share. Um, uh, the, the the one downside and, and caution I would say is having too many mobile wallets available. We actually spoke mm. with the Red Cross, uh, and they said at that one point in time they had something like nine or ten mobile payment right. options. They had Amazon Pay and you could Venmo or Cash App it. I mean, yeah. there was just every possible Well, that's friction thing. again. It's, fr it's decision friction. Now we're back into friction, right? Um, yeah, exactly. It's like you're making me figure this out. Well, I have all these apps. Which one's my most convenient? And by the time you uh -huh. figure out which app is the most convenient, which one you have a balance in, yeah, good point. <laughs> the, the whole thing is gone. Uh, the whole uh, emotion there. Um, but, um, you know, having too many can, 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 can hurt your conversion. And, um, you know, having those those key ones really um, give you a hundred percent coverage. I mean, almost a hundred percent of people in the U.S. at least will have an Apple Pay, Google Pay, or PayPal. That's you know, PayPal is you know aging out a bit for you know for for the younger demographics, while Apple Pay and Google Pay are, are picking that up. Yeah, and that's where that other you know industry data can help because. You know, there is Amazon Pay, there is Venmo that you do see on occasional forms. But if you know that, you know, whatever, Apple Pay for iOS users is 90% adoption or something, well, maybe just 
have that be the main one for mobile wallet and don't worry about the 2% of Venmo people or whatever that is, right? right? That's where industry data, consumer data can help shape, you know, our data. So anyways, that was a really interesting uh, finding that I know you guys have done some research on and I'm sure you'll do more of, but we found in this study. This episode and podcast are proudly sponsored by Virtuous. Now, you've heard Brady talk about it with our guests before, but I wanted to remind you that giving to a cause is deeply personal, and your fundraising should be too. Unfortunately, today's nonprofits are handcuffed to outdated fundraising models that reserve personal connections for a select few major donors. Instead of creating connection, Traditional impersonal tactics alienate your donors and create distance between the donor and their impact. Virtuous is the only responsive fundraising platform designed to help nonprofit teams build better donor relationships at scale. Responsive fundraising with Virtuous combines modern technology, data intelligence, and donor-centric giving experiences to foster personalized conversations with every donor. Virtuous is more than just a CRM. They unify fundraising, marketing, and donor development activities, ridding teams of redundant back office tasks, and revealing the insights needed to deliver dynamic campaigns. And all of this happens in one place. You can turn data into deeper donor relationships and grow your fundraising with Virtuous. And to learn more about responsive fundraising with them, you can visit virtuous.org generosity. That's V-I-R-T-U-O-U-S dot org slash generosity. Another thing that always comes up, and we were actually just chatting about this last week, Nick, is covering fees. Oh, no. So this could be like a, a whole, you know, subject, but this is its own when I'm podcast talking about, episode. <laughs> yeah, this is the fee covering podcast. So what I'm talking about here is at when donors make a donation, it varies all over the place and how it's positioned, if it's on or not, is it pre-checked, is it not? There's so many variables, but what we're talking about at a big level is can a donor choose to cover the transaction fees, credit card fees related to their online donation? So where do you guys kind of stand as a company in terms of the default and what have you kind of learned about donor behavior when it comes to fee covering? This is a topic that I really like talking about because I have worked in organizations that were based on the age-old assumption that you shouldn't ask a donor to cover your transaction costs for a myriad of reasons. And I remember even just a few years ago trying to Google this to find empirical data, definitive research on this topic. Is it okay to do this? one of my original questions was, is it legal? (laughs) And um, (laughs) the problem was I couldn't find anything. There was a lot of recommendations out out there, um, even some of them coming from fundraising consultants. And they usually came down to, you know, we think you should do this, or here's some like softer values and benefits. actually dive into the research. And so we looked at almost 500,000 individual donors and their behavior around covering costs. And the key takeaways here are that a majority of people want to cover those transaction costs. And by showing them that option, you're not necessarily harming future donations from the donor. They 
won't just stop giving because you ask them to cover costs. And in fact, for those donors who do cover costs, there is a admittedly small increase, uh, but nevertheless an increase in their second gift. And so there's, there's only good news surrounding this topic. And Brady, as you mentioned, we have spoken about this a, a few times now, and there's one last test that is worth running. And in fact, we have some partners who are running this test right now. And it comes down to showing the option versus not showing it altogether. Um, that's not a test that we will run globally across our customer base. Um, a lot of them have preferences for you know what's shown during checkout but we'll have data on that very soon. And I will not be surprised when it comes back positive that, that donors will respond more positively when they have the option to cover transaction costs. Yeah, that's great. Cause this is such an under research area, right? Cause people mm -hmm. say 70% of donors will cover it. Maybe, maybe not, but these types of questions, does it influence downstream giving? Does it influence how much they actually give? Does it influence conversion rate? This is where no one has had any data. So the fact that you're providing that is is amazing. And it's actually, I've I've kind of switched camps, to be honest. I was in the like, don't make fees a thing for, for donors. I, I'm still philosophically hate that sure. fees and how much you spend on fundraising. I'm in that camp yes. for sure. I'm just like, <laughs> this should be a non-issue. Like yes. who cares? But, but it, it is an issue. We've been conditioned, Correct. Brady, right? So, you know, I was, I was on that nonprofit side where these conversations happen. Um, and, and it's a sticking point. Um, but similar to the mailing address, right? Um, we, there's two segments of the donor slash consumer population that are growing. Younger, more transient people and people that are concerned with privacy and ecological concerns, right? So mm -hmm. therefore, an optional mailing address, for example, caters to them. Similar with cover fees, we are now having a growing segment of society that is part of generations where tacking on fees like it or not, is normal, right? My Uber, I, I had, I actually submitted a Postmates support ticket because I had a $30 meal that cost me $60. I said, there's something <laughs> wrong here, right? And I was like, what's going on? How did this add up? They're like, oh no, it's this fee, that fee, this fee, the other fee, another fee. And there you go, $60 and 48 cents. Couldn't believe it. But um, we are accustomed to some fees on top. So when we get to a checkout that has the box for cover transaction cost pre-selected, you know, we're seeing 90 90% over 90% of donors are covering them. We have seen and I'll, these are anecdotal numbers until our full research comes out. This is me spot checking dashboards. Um 60% when it's optional, when you have to opt into it. So even opting into it, you're still getting an, a majority that are that are willing to, not only willing, looking for that opportunity to do that. Yeah. A couple of key things that, that you pointed out. One, like something that we've been saying throughout this conversation is expectations. And that is actually a huge piece of, I mean, marketing, but, but fundraising, whether it's your communications that you send afterwards, what's on a page. If we understand what the donor expectations are, then that's amazing because if we meet them, then we should build trust and have more satisfaction. And so you and I, we can talk about this philosophically all day long, but if at the end of the day, more and more consumers are expecting mm -hmm. to see fees or the option to cover it, and then they're doing it, then who cares what I think? Who cares what you think? You know, like, again, this is a case where the 
the data can help. But one thing I will say is how it's positioned within Fundraise Up, like where it happens in the sequence and the language around it or is what's so critical. Because some other platform can say 60% or 90% cover it. You can say 92%. And how it's done, again, we make thousands of donations. I can tell you it's done in a very number of different ways from being like really high up in the giving process where you have to check that box before you've put in information. Sometimes it's just like $3.60 fees, no context, no like warm and fuzzy, you know, like how it's actually done is also really important. And I think that's where, you know, y'all's team kind of testing these different find different findings and figuring out where do we put this and how do we position it in a way that makes the donor actually feel good. You got like little hearts around it and stuff, you know, like those things, those things matter for sure. They matter. And so even saying, you know, cover them, unless you're on fundraise up, I don't think you can necessarily say that because maybe their tool is designed to have donors cover it in a way that doesn't help, you know, maybe it's done so poorly. And that's what's so complicated about that type of question is in this context. Yes. In this context, no, there is not like a, pure universal but what's great at least from your data is saying when you do it right there seems to be a a big appetite to do it and no downside really other than maybe small donors who are brand new or like a sub-segment of a sub-segment right and you get a you get a few of the high net worth donors too that um you know will will uh need to flex on on uh, a nonprofit. <laughs> there's there's nick <laughs> laughing because i'm trying to use the word flex in a sentence without <laughs> breaking my uh <laughs> train of thought which is i failed um but they'll, <laughs> they'll email the nonprofit and say something to the effect of you know what are you guys doing paying three and a half percent fees i worked in finance for 15 years blah 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 you should be on 2.2 whatever. Right. So those people also have very loud voices for nonprofits. And right. when that, you know, when they get those 10,000 donations, but three people, uh, you know, hemmed and hauled about it a little bit, um, you know, it, 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 it can cause some disruption, but again, looking back at the data. Yeah. Well, that donor should just give you a credit give you a check then if they're so worried about fees or ACH for that lowest rate <laughs> or ACH like, okay, if you're that bothered by fees, go, go do something else. Anyways, not to, to rip on them. Um, any other tips on kind of covering transactions or even just, you know, friction in general, obviously we're going to produce the study and we'll have tons more content, but you know, as, as y'all look at different data and work with a bunch of different nonprofits and clients, any kind of parting words of advice for nonprofits? Yeah, and it does have to do with covering costs because this is a a critical part of the fundraising conversation. And I'll say that when we look at this topic, it is a balanced partnership. And what I mean by that is the nonprofit has to assume, let's say, 50% of the responsibility by creating the impact that a donor's gift will have and by delivering Mm. value before a donor even arrives at the checkout process. And then in this example, I'll say that the other 50% uh, of the onus lies with the software vendor. And so from our perspective, that's why it's critical to understand donor behavior in building our product because as that donor progresses through our checkout experience, it has to be good for lack of a a better word it has to be a good experience for them and you know as we discussed earlier some of that might come down to trust indicators and i will anecdotally suggest that having a really well built form or checkout process is part of delivering trust it's 
the PayPal logos. It's the smoothness. It's the lack of errors as you move through that checkout experience. And when you have a nonprofit that can deliver the value and then a process that makes the transaction very clear, transparent, and and enjoyable, then to me as a donor, I feel that adding in an additional $6 is well worth it. Yeah, cool. Great. Thank you for that kind of parting wisdom. Um, before I let you both go, I, I want to do a, a quick rapid fire. Uh, so I'll start with you, Sal, and then Nick, you, you follow up. But what is your uh, favorite, favorite music to work to right now? Right now, 90s covers by contemporary artists. I love that 90s is now the new 80s, right? Yeah, that's uh, cool. It's, it's good. Nick, what about you? Uh, you know, I, I hope I'm not judged for this, but it's um, airplane sounds. <laughs> like the, Air- the, the sound of an airplane cabin. So essentially it's white noise with, you know, a few additional dings as, as the uh, fastened seatbelt sign comes on and off. I, I know, I know. Real? This is real? This is real? It's real. It's real. I, if you were to look at my uh, Spotify top 10 uh, categories, it would be <laughs> under there as like aircraft white noise ambience. <laughs> no idea. You're just so productive on planes. You're like trying to recreate <laughs> or just the magic. traveling yeah. so much. I, I also just miss <laughs> yeah. those planes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. You just go stay at the local double tree every now and then. Exactly. Uh, okay. That's, that's by far the weirdest answer I've ever heard, but that's okay. Judgment, judgment free zone. Judgment free zone. That's fine. Uh, person or site you think people should follow? Sal. Professor G, Scott Galloway, NYU professor. He started on Vice News, I think, has a blog, has some shows online. He's awesome. Good one. Nick? For me, it is StoryBrand. This is a framework built out by Donald Miller. Uh, for nonprofits out there that feel like they're struggling with their, their story or their messaging, this is the resource to, to check out. Cool. Uh, best part about lockdown or thing that you're going to miss about lockdown now that we're getting out of it. I'm, so. I'm going to miss empty roads and having no traffic in New York city. <laughs> it was nice. Yeah. It was awesome. <laughs> I went out this weekend driving around. It was packed. I'd spent like an hour in traffic. There you go. Nick. I, I have to agree with Sal and I happened to move here to New York city in the midst of the pandemic and rode the subway to work without anybody in the car and now i feel now you're like getting the full experience <laughs> there's, there's now so many people in the subway car that i don't know that my feet ever touch the ground i'm just kind of like <laughs> elevated by all the bodies that are crammed together in there all right so what's the worst part about lockdown or thing you're most looking forward to now that we're getting out of it Sal? i'm looking forward to getting back to some concerts some live music hmm. maybe some 90s covers hopefully <laughs> nick Getting back on a plane or? <laughs> you know, I, I got to get back on the plane and, and hit up that local double tree. But most importantly, it's the restaurants. I am a self-proclaimed mm. foodie. And so the ability to dine without restriction is something I've really been looking forward to. Yeah. Well, there you go. All right. Last one. What, what's an organization that you um, support and or admire? My one of my little uh, my I guess my favorites that I have from the ones we work with International Anti Poaching Foundation. They did a really awesome uh, neo, uh, National Geographic uh, short mini documentary on Disney Plus. You can check it out. Akashinga. Um, I think they're doing just a great mission, and they have such 
great clarity in what their dollars that they raised have done. And they send out these, these mm. newsletters that say exactly how many elephants that they were able to save or how many illegal poachers they were able to imprison. Very cool. Love. Nick? For me, uh, education is a huge part of, of my life and especially tech education. And so I really love and support both We All Code and Girls Who Code and any other nonprofit that's dedicated to increasing the technical proficiency of young people and especially uh, young females. Awesome. Yeah, those two great organizations. Well, thank you both so much for, again, partnering on this research, all the wonderful work that you do, and for taking some time today. Uh, where can people find out more about you and your work? Our address is 219. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, come visit <laughs> us online. Our website is fundraiseup.com. Earlier, I mentioned the blog. That's blog.fundraiseup.com. And uh, both Sal and I are fairly active on LinkedIn. So come join us, connect with us, be a part of the conversation, and uh, certainly be the first to see new research as it gets pushed out the door. Or stop by the office. We are in. Or stop by the <laughs> office. That's true. Industry City in Brooklyn. Yes. There you go. Well, thanks again and uh, all the best. Thanks, Brady. Brady, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Generosity Freak Show brought to you by our friends at Virtuous, the only responsive fundraising platform designed to help nonprofit teams build better donor relationships with all of their donors. Be sure to subscribe to all future episodes at generosityfreakshow.com or search the Generosity Freak Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, other platforms that start with S, or wherever you get your pods. Now, the Generosity Freak Show is a production of Next After, where we combine the perpetual learning of a fundraising research lab, the practical application of a digital first agency, and the rigorous instruction of a training institute to decode what works in fundraising and make it accessible to as many organizations as possible. You can learn more about the work that we do and get free evidence-based fundraising resources at nextafter.com. Now, this show would not be possible without a few folks, including our mixologist, Jacob Hill, producers Riley Landenberger and Nathan Hill, and the chief visionary behind it all, Tim Kuchuriak. So thank you so much again for listening. And no matter where you are or what you're doing right now, I hope you're having a great day.